0: Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey.
1: And I'm Mark Dunlake. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a story about the need to raise welfare benefits. Then for a peace bucket, we hear from one Jewish woman about why she is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Later on, we get an update on books to read from the Troy Public Library's Young People's Service. At that, we talk to our own engineer, Joan Eason, about her experience as a Media Sanctuary intern and musician. We finish up with a segment from a former intern on Seed and Sovereignty, a multi-generational, indigenous women-led collective. But first, headlines.
0: News 10 reports that code blue shelters in Troy have hit maximum capacity. Individuals are able to go to the Department of Social Services for assistance, but sometimes they lack the needed paperwork, such as IDs. Troy City Council President Sue Steele says the city needs to find a way to get more shelters.
1: Advocates for medical aid in dying rallied at the state capitol on Tuesday. Lawmakers have failed to pass legislation for eight years to assist the terminally ill and their lives peacefully. Ten states and Washington, D.C. have already authorized medical aid in dying for terminally ill patients.
0: The Times Union reports that Schenectady Ethics Board has dismissed complaints filed by a local police officer against City Council member Damani Farley. The panel described Farley as polite and respectful during interactions with the dispatcher and police lieutenant during a phone call about a vehicle belonging to the lawmaker's friend that he believed was wrong- wrongfully towed.
1: The Gazette reports that the family of Samantha Humphrey has refreshed a pair of billboards in Schenectady in information connected to the murder of the city teen who was recovered from the Mohawk River last February.
0: Fellow soccer players have started a GoFundMe page for Delphine Sozu, who arrived at the College of St. Rose from Ghana on a scholarship shortly before the college announced it was closing. Sozu, a graduate student, spent her life savings in coming to the college.
1: Albany International Airport will remove what remains of the pedestrian bridge connecting the parking garage to the main terminal this week, leading to periodic closures of driving lanes in front of the terminal. The terminal is undergoing a $100 million renovation. That's it for headlines.
0: New York's Public Assistance Grants amount largely for low-income women and their children have not been updated in decades and are completely inadequate. There are no rental units in the private market priced at or below the shelter allowance. Haley Kulikowski and Susan Antos, attorneys with the Empire Justice Center, discussed the need to raise the welfare grant with Mark Dunley.
1: We were talking about the need in New York state to raise the uh, welfare grant for um, public assistance recipients. Um, And we've asked uh, two of the uh, staff attorneys um, with the Empire Justice Citizen Center, uh, Susan Antos, who's the managing attorney, and Haley Kulikowski, uh, who's an attorney with him, to come on and talk about you know why groups are coming together, I believe under the in Poverty Now campaign to ask for an increase in the public assistance shelter allowance and the basics needs grant. But, so can we maybe just give us a brief introduction why you know what is Empire Justice Center um, why is this important to you or your the people you represent and what, what's the basic um, request at this point?
2: Yeah, so thanks for having us. So Empire Justice Center is a statewide public interest, nonprofit law firm, and our mission is to make the law work for all New Yorkers, especially those who need protection the most, including, you know, people who are living in deep poverty like those who are on public assistance. And, you know, we do all types of work. We engage in administrative and legislative advocacy, training, and impact litigation. And, you know, some of your listeners may remember us from a few months back where we Uh, came on to talk about our report, which discussed uh, the need to increase the shelter allowance. And now we're here on uh, a similar issue. We're talking about increasing public assistance as a whole, including the shelter allowance and um, another component of public assistance, which is the basic needs. So for those who may be unfamiliar, uh, cash public assistance is a safety net program for New Yorkers living in deep poverty. It comes in the form of a monthly benefit And as I said, it includes several components, like an allowance for shelter, uh, for energy costs, and for basic needs, you know, like basic household, you know, equipment, you know, cleaning supplies, bathroom necessities. And it's just so woefully inadequate. So just for a quick example, so people can imagine how low this is. If you are, if you were living in Albany, if a parent is in Albany with two children, and you know, they're unable to work due to illness for uh, in public assistance. They would get six hundred ninety eight dollars a month, three hundred ninety dollars designated for rent for the shelter allowance and three hundred and eighty nine for everything else. That max, then that would be the maximum amount of public assistance they could receive. It's incredibly low. And in 2024, it's nearly impossible to live on. That's why we're recommending that the state take immediate action to increase the shelter allowance, basic needs and ensure that rent supplements are available to all households who need them.
1: Now, we're taping this segment on uh, Friday, uh, January 12th. Uh, the, the governor, Governor Hochul, uh, is going to release her budget um, on, on January 16th. So some people may be hearing this after the budget comes out. But my suspicion is the governor's not going to be um, you know, pushing for an increase in the welfare benefits uh, in the state budget. You know, what has been any response either from the governor's office or from state, you know, legislative leaders about their willingness to, um, you know, raise the welfare grant? And let, when's the last time this has been raised?
2: Well, so, you know, like everybody else, you know, we are waiting to see what will be included in this budget. I, I wish I had a crystal ball to know, uh, but we do know that, the, as, and as I've just explained, you know, the shelter allowance basic needs are so inadequate, they need to be increased. And there is a growing recognition that these, uh, that the shelter allowance and basic needs need to be increased. So a letter just went out to Governor Hochul uh, calling for an increase in public assistance, where dozens of organizations signed, I believe almost like nearly 100 organizations signed, you know, asking for this increase and recognizing how much it is needed. Uh, We've also, you know, seen within the Child Poverty Reduction, uh, sorry, the Child Poverty Reduction Advisory Council. that they're commissioning research on the impact on reducing poverty in children by increasing the shelter allowance. So we're looking forward to seeing their uh, research when that comes out too. So there is this kind of growing recognition that this is so desperately needed. And, you know, to answer that last question about, you know, when was the last time it was raised is it's it's gone on for so long where this has not been raised. So it just cannot reflect the reality of what costs are. So for the shelter allowance, at least, was last increased for families with children in 2003. And if you are a person on public assistance without children, that was last increased in 1988. So, you know, it's been decades since these numbers have been increased. And for basic needs, Susan um, has some more information about that
3: yeah, that was last increased in 2012. It was a 10 percent increase that was enacted in 2010 and implemented over three years. And the last year was 2012. So it was a very small increase even then. Um, and you know as as Haley mentioned, in every single she she mentioned they were low, but I can tell you that in every single county, the public assistance grant is less than 50% of the federal poverty level, which is just over $2,000 a month. And in counties like Albany and Erie County, which are on the lower end of the spectrum, it's about a third of the poverty level. So uh, the basic needs allowance is desperately, desperately low and in need of being raised.
1: And you know, and my understanding, and we talk about the basic needs allowance, uh, because the actual shelter allowance is so small, people end up taking their basic needs money to supplement their, their housing um, costs, and that leaves less money for, you know, safe food, which drives up the demand and emergency food programs. Now, Governor... Qua- Absolutely. Uh, Hochul- I,
3: and actually, if I want to clarify those numbers I gave you from for Erie County and Albany, that's if you take basic needs plus shelter, you're at 33% of, of poverty. I'm, I'm, I don't think I made that clear. It's the total of the two that bring you up to a third of the poverty level.
1: Now, Governor Hochul, both last year and this year, as well as some of the state lawmakers, have made affordable housing a a cornerstone of what the Democrat, you know, leadership needs to do here in New York. Have they tied? Well, you know, one of the things we need to do to make housing more affordable is to raise the shelter allowance. Has that been part of the mindset of 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 the governor, or even you know, uh, Speaker Hasty or um, Majority Leader Cousin Stewart?
2: Well. You know, I don't know if I can speak for their mindset, but we do know that when we wanna be addressing this really complicated issue of poverty and affordable housing, you know, building new affordable housing is definitely going to be a part of it. But it's also critical, you know, in our opinion, that households in deep poverty, uh, that we also address this issue of the inadequacy of the the shelter allowance, because uh, building housing, new housing can take time and people receiving public assistance need to be able to pay rent now. So even when, you know, we believe that affordable housing is part of the solution. We know that affordable housing, that rent isn't going to be zero dollars. So uh, we, yes, we do need more affordable housing. And we also need to increase public assistance so that recipients can afford rent. And I think for us, we think that both of those things are going to be part of the solution for solving this really complicated issue of of poverty and, and affordable housing in, in New York. And Mark, um, just,
3: just so you know, there are bills in uh, both the Assembly and the Senate Um, that are being sponsored by uh, chairs with considerable power to both raise the basic needs grant and the shelter allowance.
1: So we have a little bit under two minutes left, so I got to ask you a broad question and then you can figure out how to use your last uh, two minutes. Um, You know, I guess the biggest question, if people want more information, um, uh, particularly about how they can express their viewpoints on on the the shelter allowance and uh, welfare grant, how best can they do that? And in the last 90 seconds, are there other you know, key anti-poverty measures the Empire Justice Center is, is pushing that people should take a look at?
3: Yes, there definitely are. We're going to be submitting testimony for the Human Services budget hearing, and that uh, testimony will be on our website. I don't have time in a minute to explain it. I can tell you there are about 10 important items including making the penalties for people um, who are what are called sanctioned on public assistance, who get their grants reduced, making it consistent with the rules in New York City, which were changed in 2015 to be kind of kinder and gentler. They give people a second chance if they they make a mistake. And uh, instead of having their grants cut off, they're given a second opportunity to comply. Uh, and that's and that's a bill that actually passed both houses in 2021 and then was vetoed by the governor. We're hoping it will come back. The governor said she didn't oppose it, that she just needed more information on the fiscal impact. There is no fiscal impact. We're really sure about that. We've done a lot of digging. Uh, that's all on our website, uh, which is Empire Justice, www.empirejustice.org.
1: Well, thank you very much, Susan Antos and and Haley Kulikowski with the Empire Justice Center. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So the governor, as expected, did not propose any increase in the welfare grant. And to a certain extent, she went in the opposite direction by, by pushing for the counties actually to pay more of the welfare benefits which always acts as a negative incentive for them to provide uh, more benefits. And also it becomes tough to raise welfare benefits whenever uh, there's a lot of job openings in the lowest paid jobs, when people don't want to take them, that's when they make welfare um, even more onerous in order to get people to take those jobs no one else wants.
0: Lioness Schaefer recently spoke with all, at the Albany Common Council in favor of the resolution for the ceasefire in Gaza and wrote a letter to the Times Union called Hatred's Heavy Toll. A rabbi with Song song of Songs, she discussed the conflicting emotions many feel about the present situation with Mark Dunley for this week's Peace Bucket.
1: For this week's um, Peace Bucket, um, we are joined by Lena Schaefer, who recently wrote a, a letter to the times union uh, about the need for a ceasefire and and particularly made the point that uh, violence unfortunately only leads um to usually to more more violence um so so lena thank you very much for joining us you know what prompted you to um um you know write this letter to the times union
4: hello mark first of all thank you so much for inviting me for this interview i appreciate your interest and uh and this opportunity so um, I belong to the Sisterhood of Salaam Shalom, which is a national organization with local chapters made up of Muslim and Jewish women. One of my sisters, Zarina Jalal, uh, knowing my heart and my daughter's story, she encouraged me to speak for the Gaza ceasefire resolution at the Albany Common Council. And I wrote up those remarks and I spoke on the at the December 18th meeting. Another sister read the remarks and she suggested that I submit those remarks for publication. So that's actually what I did. I didn't really write the letter to the to you. I, uh, these were my remarks from the Albany Common Council December 18th meeting.
1: And, and we have covered the uh, the Common Council uh, on this show and they did recently pass uh, that yes. resolution in support of a ceasefire. And uh, I, I noticed that you are a rabbi with the uh, Song of, of Songs. You've been part of the congregation of uh, Ohav uh, Shalom um but you mentioned in your letter that you made a visit to jerusalem to see your daughter and her partner a palestinian who gave you a tour of his community and you met his family you know what was that visit like um i'll tell you but i just want to do a little slight
4: clarification on the uh i I am a song of song rabbi um that uh, ordination is not connected to congregational shalom in albany where i am a member i'm just a, a lay member and leader there but I did receive ordination as a song of song rabbis, which is not a congregational rabbi through the um, my teacher Rabbi Gol. So let me tell you about the visit to Israel-Palestine. It's a great question. Um, that visit was both wonderful and it was difficult. Uh, spending time with my daughters was delicious. So my younger daughter lives in Jerusalem and my older daughter who accompanied me on that trip, she turned 30 while we were there. And it was actually on her 30th birthday that we were invited to um, visit with my younger daughter's partner and his family in East Jerusalem. Um, So my younger daughter lives in West Jerusalem. Her partner is Palestinian, lives in East Jerusalem. And they invited us over for dinner on my older daughter's 30th birthday. They got her a cake, you know, we had a party. It was all very warm hearted and generous and delightful. His mom speaks English well, and we connected instantly. You know, the way it sometimes happens when you meet someone who's like heart seems to vibrate along the same frequency as yours. We talked about our kids and the relationship and about our families and about food and about life, Um, just really hit it off. Um, His dad's English is not as deft and my Arabic is basically non-existent, but we made an amazing connection going through his family's photo albums. He was just delighted to show us his relatives and landmarks in Jerusalem and other parts of Palestine, all the way back to like the late 1800s. They were remarkable photos, really cool. Um, and then as I mentioned in my remarks in the, in the, in the column of the, the Time Union, later that evening, uh, my daughter's partner gave us a tour of his Jerusalem. It was a narrated car tour of Jerusalem. And, um, you know, it was a little bit heartbreaking, really. Uh, it changed, it really changed the way I saw the city. And in some ways, it felt good and right to be woken up to this other reality, like in alignment with the work of reconciliation um, and staying grounded in the open heart. It was almost a relief, Um, it was almost a relief, even though it was painful. I found the presence of the ultra-Orthodox extremist Jews in Jerusalem really difficult during my visit. Uh, On one occasion, they were like marching in the streets shouting death to Arabs in Hebrew, which is like so out of line with the Jewish values that I hold dear, um, you know, and then being witness to the truth being shared with us in that car by this young Palestinian man felt very, very much more in line with those Jewish values, even as it, it was a challenge for me. So yeah, it was a mixed bag, but um, I'm grateful.
1: Now you you mentioned you know your your congregation that you're a member of, and I assume there's like m- 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 in most Jewish communities is very mixed feelings about um, both the support of the Israel and the need to defend itself. What what have some of those discussions been like?
4: Oh boy, so Mark, you you are correct about the mixed feelings in the congregation uh, and the support for Israel and its right to defend itself. Um. There really hasn't been, I would say, a communal conversation about this per se. I can tell you that our rabbi is wonderful and he is doing his best to acknowledge and support the struggles his um, congregants, you know, who cover a wide variety along the political spectrum, you know, are managing, right? There are prayers during our Shabbat services in the morning. There's prayers for the hostages, there's prayers for the IDF, and there are prayers for the innocence of Gaza. Um, I'm very honored to be a lay leader at the synagogue, and I hold a small chant and meditation group learning about and embodying the lessons of the Song of Songs on Shabbat, on Shabbat mornings before services. So two weeks ago, there were seven of us there, you know, in that um, that morning, and during the silence after the chant, I became aware that of those seven people, at least three of them were in the shul that day because they fe- they felt safe showing up in that space knowing knowing me, knowing my heart sickness over the bombing of Gaza. um, And, you know, there's three, there's probably more. (laughs) I'm hoping our congregation can explicitly welcome folks who aren't necessarily comfortable with the blanket, you know, we stand with Israel statement that begins every email communication. Um, While I I do feel horror, ongoing horror about the October 7th attack, and I'm very worried and distressed about the continued imprisonment of the hostages taken that day. Um, I don't stand with the actions of the Israeli government and I very much don't stand with the ongoing brutality in Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. I, I know that there are some OHAV members who are outraged by my continued presence there as a teacher and I have seen some social media posts from others calling anyone with my views a traitor to the Jewish people and a supporter of Hamas. So, you know, it's difficult, right? It's difficult. And I value the community. We show up for each other in times of illness and celebration and death. We're, we're there for each other and we pray and we learn together. Um, the congregation has supported my spiritual growth and my leadership. So to me, it's worth showing up and staying engaged, hopefully with an open heart and from a place of love.
1: Now, the conflict uh, between the state of Israel and and Palestinians, of course, I'm going on, you know, since probably even before, of course, the founding of Israel, but that's been over 75 years ago, you know, there's, you know, every decade or two, some effort about trying to come to some, you know, resolution, some permanent peace. Um, Do you have hope that a true and just peace can be found at this point that actually values, you know, everybody, Palestinians and Israelis?
4: I do. Um, you know, there's no, there's no way to get to a true and just peace other than through justice and self-determination for all the people living in that land. Um, and I'm very encouraged by the work being done by Arab and Jewish Israelis working together for a shared society. There are lots of organizations, like just a short list would be organizations like Givat Chaviva, Standing Together, uh, the Hand in Hand Schools. Um, And the program my daughter participated in, Achvat Amim, which means solidarity of nations. Uh, That's where I put my hope. You know, it's in these people working together for a shared society. And um, that's where I put my hope.
1: How how, how does a ceasefire come about at this point? Or if you were talking to the president or congressman, you know, Tonko, what would you say to them about, you know, why we need a ceasefire right now?
4: You know, I actually did have an audience with uh, with Congressman Tonko, with a couple of my sisterhood um, uh, friends. Uh, and listen, I'm not a politician. I'm not a scholar. I'm not somebody who who gets to say what does and doesn't happen there. But I can tell you that. The lie being sold to the to the people is that that this bombardment of Gaza is going to lead to peace, that it's going to lead to safety. And I think it's very clear to anybody really looking that that the opposite is true. That if we want safety and peace, um, there has to be a ceasefire. Uh, there, there, We can't, you know, forgive forgive this old slogan, but we can't bomb our way to peace.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Leonard uh, Schaefer, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So on Wednesday, um, Israel and Hamas has agreed to uh, some basically medical aid for the hostages held by Hamas in exchange for medicine and humanitarian aid uh, for for Palestinians. and on Tuesday, uh, Senator Sanders from Vermont uh, did put together a motion to have the Department of State to investigate um, whether the Israeli uh, military operation um, you know has been in compliance with uh, international human rights, uh, particularly since the United States has given so much money to that, um, that failed with only um, 12 votes uh, among the 100 senators uh, that were cast. Uh, but for those of you just tuning in, and even those of you have been listening, I'm Mark Dunlein.
0: And I'm Sina basila You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York.
1: If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, coworker, and that special somebody at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at Mediasanctuary.org.
0: Next, Bria Barthel headed to the Troy Public Library to speak with Young People's Services uh, head, the head of Young People's Services, Carol Roberts, about her monthly recommendations and some new books for kids and young adults.
5: This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm delighted once again to be back at Troy Public Library's main branch with Carol Roberts, the head of Young People's Services. Carol, welcome
6: back. Thank you, and Happy New Year.
5: Thanks. Happy New Year to you. So I see we're starting off the year with a couple interesting books.
6: What do you have for us this time? Uh, The first book I want to talk about is a young adult book. It's called The Scarlet Veil. It's written by Shelby Mahern. And um, this, this book is a great read. It's got a strong female lead. She's a warrior named Salie, and she's one of the Chasseur, uh, which is a group of belteran hunters who protect the community from witches and other creatures. Um, but in the story, bodies are turning up with an alarming frequency, and it, they appear seemingly unharmed um, when they're found, except that they have two puncture marks on the neck and um, are completely bloodless. And there is a vampire preying on citizens, and it's up to her to stop them. The writing's really good. It's fast-paced. It's a romantic fantasy. Um, she's, uh, her fiancé is the captain of, um, of all of the um, witch hunters, and it's, it's a great read. Um, I highly recommend it. And you said she's a Belteran? Belteran, yes. Um, the people from Belterra. So she's a Belteran witch hunter. So this is set on Earth. It's not a, a space thing. No,
5: it's not a space thing. Okay. That sounds great. It looks like quite the read, though. How many pages is that?
6: Oh, it's a chunky book, um, Ooh, it's um, almost 600 pages, so...
5: Okay, but it's... But it's spa- good. It's good. And it's good spacing between
6: the lines. It's not quite as scary as it might be. Yeah. Okay, great. And your next book? The next book I have is also a young adult book. This is called All These Sunken Souls, a black horror anthology, and it's edited by Cersei Moskowitz. And these are... Um, Stories with black protagonists written by black authors. And so um, what I like about this is that it's a modern take on a lot of the classic horror tropes um, that we we know. Um, for example, uh, you know, the old Bloody Mary um The old Bloody Mary theme where if you're at a sleepover and you say her name three times, she'll appear and steal your soul. Um, You don't recall that one? No, you're saying this is an old trope, which I've never heard of. Oh, yeah, the old Bloody Mary trope. And then um, there's also a story. um, This is the one that got me, though. There's one about, um, it's a babysitter, and she collects teeth from, from her human subjects. So the, the kid said she's babysitting, um, and she gets money from this doctor for, for human teeth. But children's teeth are worth more. So sort of an evil tooth fairy. Very much so, yes, exactly. I like the,
5: one of the blurbs on the back says, All these sunken souls breathes monstrous new life into
6: the withered, desiccated husks of the familiar horror tropes. Yeah, it's spooky, not something you'd want to read alone at night. Okay, so it, and you know, you can
5: combine that with watching Get Out. Yes, that too.
6: Okay, and then the next one has a question I've often wondered about Why do Elephants Have Big Ears? Written by Steve Jenkins and Robin Page. And like most Steve Jenkins, um, books. Um, There are larger than life illustrations, um, which is really what makes this book so fun. And um, there's small bits of information which are really easy to digest. So it it will hold children's interests. Um, One of the things I learned, um, why are polar bears white? And I didn't know this, but that's so that obviously, I mean, they blend in with the snow. But the reason that they're white is because they're The fur is actually clear, and it's the way the light um, plays off or is filtered through the hairs that makes it appear white, um, which I just found fascinating. Plus, though, it has the added advantage in that it allows sunlight to penetrate the bear's skin, which is actually black. Who knew? The illustrations are really nice. There's
5: one page or two pages per story. They have the big question, and then like, why do flamingos stand on one leg? We have a large picture of the bottom half of a flamingo, but on each page with all the different animals, they also seem to have a silhouette of a human showing the size of the animal, a silhouette of the animal showing the relative size, which is nice because the Pictures are large, so it's good to have some sense of perspective.
6: Yes. Um, And also, what I love is the back matter. Um, So for every animal, um, there's more information for kids. um, And they're easy to spot. And there's also a picture, um, so you can easily find um, the subject that you're interested in. And there's more things to learn here, so. I gotta love a nonfiction kid's book with back matter. It's also a nice combination
5: of things that we may be familiar with, like fox and zebra we've seen pictures of, but then it also has giant squid, mole rats, the eye-eye, wombats, so a nice interesting selection of
6: animals to answer questions about, maybe questions you didn't know you had. Right, and this is also um, for age, I want to say for ages four and eight, so really this is what we call an informational picture book, even though it's nonfiction, it's it's um, pictures with uh, facts. Very cool pictures. Thank you. That's great. Okay, and next, the next is a picture book called Masala Chai and Fast and Slow. And this is written by Rajani LaRocca and it's illustrated by Neha Rawat. And this is an intergenerational tale about a young boy. His name's Arav and his grandfather, whom he calls Thada, And together, they have the shared ritual of, of making chai together. Um, and this, this ensues. Um, we learn a little bit about the relationship between the two. And of course, the boy is young and fast, and the grandfather's a little slower but wise. Um, And then at one point, the grandfather has an accident. And so Arav has to figure out how to make chai on his own. And most listeners know chai is sort of a spicy tea in India. Yes, and very popular here as well. And I guarantee that after you read this book, you're going to want to go out and buy yourself some chai, which is exactly what I did yesterday. (laughs) And it includes a recipe in the back for making chai. but I guess the point of the story is really that the boy um, has, has several attempts to try to make it like his grandfather's, but he's frustrated until he remembers his grandfather's advice, which is to slow things down. And so remembering that, um, he, employs those, he employs that idea, and then he's successful. And so they all share in the chai at the end. So this is a lovely story. And the drawings are nice. uh, It
5: shows the boy and and the grandfather? Yes. Uh, Sometimes they're outside or in the kitchen. Sometimes it's showing uh, the boy jumping into his pants on two legs at a time. Uh, So it's
6: it's pretty colorful, simple drawings, but lovely. Yes, and don't forget there's a recipe in the back um, so you can make your own should you choose. I think I know what you'll be doing tonight, Carol. Um, I don't know if I would make my own chai, because uh, you can easily find it so many places, but maybe, uh, maybe sometime. Okay, so those books again were The Scarlet Veil,
5: All These Sunken Souls, stories of, of black horror stories, Anthology of Black Horror Stories, Why Do Elephants Have Big Ears, and Masala Chai. Fast and slow. Machalas, blah, let me try that again. Easy for me to say. Masala chai, fast and slow. Thanks a lot, Carol. So good to have you back. Thanks, Bria. Good to see you. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
1: And we'll be having more from Bria. Um, I believe her next show will be about adult books uh, at the library. But in general, for more details, um, visit www.thetroylibrary.org And to find other libraries in New York State You can see Oh, way, way too long Check out mediacentury.org And look for uh, this segment uh, To find that particular link
0: And next we turn the microphone To Joan Eason Who works behind the scenes To keep our Wednesday program going Joan is a musician, and we're ex- excited to speak with her about music and studying at Schenectady County Community College. Welcome, Joan. Hello. <laughs> so just to recount, the first time that I met you was uh, a very musical association. You jumped on stage for the sound check for Taina Seely to play the congas, which is how we found out that you are pretty talented, uh... <laughs> on percussion instruments. So how how many instruments do you play? Let's start there.
7: Um, it's kind of just like whatever gets thrown at me on a given day. Um, so it's mainly like right now, mainly I'm studying marimba and mallet percussion. But um, yeah, I studied congas one uh, years ago and um, up until a few years ago. And then Uh, started studying like classical percussion here. And now it's just pretty much like every time I get into an ensemble, there's like some new thing that I like. It's like here you have to play a vibraphone with a violin bow. And like, yeah. um, So it's a lot. I haven't actually tallied it up.
1: (laughs) So so I understand you've worked with uh, one of the prominent Congo players uh, from the capital area, Uh, Who was that, and uh, what was uh, learning with him like?
7: Um, So he was a teacher at RPI. Um, His name was Eddie Knowles. He was also the vice president at the time when I was there. Um, He was uh, just uh, born in New York City and came up here um, to—I think he was— I don't know how he got the vice president position but one of his stipulations is that he t- teach an afro cuban percussion class. So I took the class with him and then after I graduated I kept in touch with him and kept coming um and going to his rehearsals with his um uh alumni group called Ensemble Congueros who I don't even know if they're still around now. Um he passed about 2 or 3 years ago. It was right during the peak of the pandemic. Um So, yeah, I haven't kept in touch with any of much of them since then. But, um, yeah, it was uh, that was a cool way that got me excited in like an entirely different type of music that even after I left the area for a while, I still found a different um, independent instructor that just taught me from his um, like out of his studio in his basement. And so I just kept studying while once I was working um, in a really boring corporate job.
0: So for the amount of instruments that you play, is it can I assume that you have just a natural sense of percussion? And is it practicing? Is it natural talent?
7: Um no, it's definitely not natural. Um if you had seen me if like a year and a half ago, like my main instructor now still just laughs. It's like, wow, you couldn't even read a note. Like I couldn't um because like Latin percussion is all verbal and like taught to you, just like they play the rhythm, you play it back. So this was an entirely different thing. Um, no, I oh, is I, it like
0: speaking? Right, making the instrument speak. Th- yeah, and they'll like sing
7: the rhythm to you, and you sing it back. Sometimes, so it's, it's a lot of that way. Whereas, so for this, I had this, I'm studying, I'm practicing at least two hours a day, like minimum of two hours a day. And, uh, there are some days where I've put in like four or five hours and just looked up and like, ah, um, cause I really came in knowing to the program. And now I came in knowing like nothing, like I cannot stress like how little I knew. And it was only because I had the privilege to, after the first year that I was there, kind of commit full time to just studying music. And, um, I was just, I had the time to put in, but it's, Pure like anyone who puts in the time like will get considerably better and will get way better than they think they can even be if they just practice. Um, that's my biggest thing, um, and I'm sure if my dean hears this, he'll be like, "Good, good, <laughs> you said that. <laughs> we were just telling everyone um, because <laughs> it's really like it, there aren't enough people at this. Like there aren't. There should be more people practicing there. As lot like as there are some through there, but like it's you can tell when people are practicing and it's not anything about being natural it's just like commit to the time and deal with the fact that some of it's going to be boring and rote but that's to get you to the fun stuff
1: so you've been uh, engineering uh, every wednesday for quite a few months here at the uh, the sanctuary uh for the Hudson Mohawk magazine you know if you were talking to the students you know what would you say to them or some of the benefits of Doing this type of volunteer work, and would you encourage others to follow in your footsteps?
7: um yeah, we're trying to actually get a few other students from a c c c here too um, It's been super useful just because it's kind of um it's a live environment you're working in you're working on an actual switchboard, you have kind of the timing component where it's you know at school you, you know you might have like A week to work on a project or something and you can fiddle and stuff but here it's like you kind of get used to nope something's happening at six o'clock on the dot and we're gonna start on the dot and um, having that like pressure but it's a little more lower stakes than being in like a live music venue so um, yeah it's a really good place to get your hands on things and getting used to working in like an environment where you have to kind of be flipping switches while people are talking and like kind of having like your brain on two different devices at once sometimes. So um, I think it's really useful just to, yeah, have that kind of hands-on experience that you really, otherwise you have to kind of, like other places you, yeah. um, It's really hard to find any opportunities in the region that you can kind of get hands-on experience unless you're really, really trying to beat the door down.
0: And what is the program that you're a uh, part of at Schenectady County Community College?
7: Uh, so I'm doing two programs, the per, uh, classical percussion and then the audio technology program, which is um, studio productions, so learning how to mic uh, instruments in a, a studio setting, doing live sound, so learning how to route music through a PA and that sort of thing. That's kind of how I started here was doing that live show you mentioned at the beginning yeah you were um, showcasing
0: troy Paul, right yes oh, shadowing i mean
7: yes yes um yeah exactly uh so it's uh yeah it's just a really great program that gets you a lot of hands-on experience and um and yeah the head of the department there Sten I soxon is just um an incredibly knowledgeable person who will like just throw stuff at you as soon as you're like, oh, you know how to do this. Cool. Here's everything. And like, um, so yeah, it's great.
1: So when you uh, finish up, I believe um, perhaps in the, the semester at Connecticut Community College, what's your next plans with your your music and audio career?
7: Um, so I'm applying to a few SUNY schools. Um, SUNY Purchase is the one I'm waiting to hear back from. That's the, like, would be probably my the pick that I really like the most um and then University of Hartford is the other one that is the other big so I'm just kind of trying a different few different places around here unfortunately the one music program that would have been in the region is no longer here um for a four year program so it's kind of a big like it, it's kind of something that that whole school is kind of having to deal with is that there's no like four-year program to like have teachers come into the um, Albany school system now they have to go somewhere else and now there isn't a grad program because St. Rose was the only grad program so if teachers need to get their grad certification then they have to also go somewhere else or study something that's not music so um, yeah it's I would love to find I would have loved to have had somewhere to study in the region to keep studying but there's just nowhere else anymore after St. Rose shut down.
4: Hmm.
0: So we only have a minute left. Uh, I'm curious to know how has this work playing music and also, uh, the, your studies at SCCC changed your view on the world. How do you walk down the street differently through what you're learning?
7: Um, you know, I, it, the first time I went to college, I wasn't probably mature enough to do it. So I didn't learn how to do any of the networking, I was really insulated and didn't connect with a lot of people, and um, at SC like, this school, it's a little smaller, so it's kind of, you have, like, you bump into people so often that you just have to get to know them in a way, Um, so just being able to connect with people who are very coming from, like, very different walks of life than what I'm coming from and just kind of getting... That sort of exposure and just learning, like also just seeing how younger people are like seeing the world and being like, oh, yes, they're hopeful and like not cynical. And like, I should learn a little bit of this from them and take this with me. Um, So that's been really cool too. And yeah, just also realizing like, oh, if I put a lot of effort into something, I'll be able to actually excel and I can do whatever I want to do if I just do the effort.
0: Joan Eason, thank you so much for letting us interview you and for engineering our Wednesday programs. Thanks. <laughs> and we close out our show with an example of what interns could produce by working with Hudson Walk Magazine. We, this last piece is from Anna Camp, a former intern um, from Duke University. So it was a virtual internship um, from her series Indigenous Voices.
8: Hi, my name is Janet McGillivray. I am here on Lenape Hoking territory in so called New York State. And I am the founder and executive director of Seeding Sovereignty, that was born at Standing Rock in the peaceful protection of the waters and the resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline. And we have since then blossomed into a collective of indigenous women who are all working on the front lines of social justice issues. On that point
0: about the founding of Seeding Sovereignty, online it states that you founded Seeding Sovereignty to amplify the role of Indigenous knowledge and to de-expert and diversify the environmental movement. Can you expand upon why it is necessary to de-expert and diversify the movement and what effect this would have?
8: Yes. It is really come to our system of environmental protection does not invite participation by people who we need to join the movement in order for there to be any kind of change and the beginning of environmental protection and the laws that evolved from early people taking a stand for their waters and their communities involve people standing up for something that was an injustice These were not degreed individuals. These were not people at nonprofit organizations. These were individuals that had compassion for their neighbors, care for their children's futures, and had a plan to stand in resistance to something that was clearly going to have a very negative impact uh, for generations to come. And over time, people then gradually outsourced their environmental enthusiasm I think to a lot of the environmental organizations that started to create a a wealth of experience and knowledge and expertise to then look at uh, more specific areas of environmental protection segmenting the idea of the planet in terms of air and water and soil um, energy and ultimately created a system that now is so large um, with tremendous numbers of very knowledgeable people, but for whom the majority of individuals may send in a monthly contribution or respond to an email alert, but emotionally they're disconnected from the movement as a participatory invitation. And by looking at those that are, Directly impacted by decisions being made very locally or in in halls of decision-making in Washington and other Bureaucratic centers, it's really the voice of those that are directly impacted that has been ignored It's been silenced and it's been relegated to an area that is not invited to actually speak Um, we don't have the opportunity to directly in, in environmental organizations, we're really quite removed from those that we are in service to. And unfortunately, now in 2020, I, I think that what has happened is we've become we've outsourced our environmentalism emotionally. We do small parts because life has become very busy. This is of course pre-COVID, and now you know, much has actually changed. There's a reconnection to a source, there's a rebalancing of priorities. But in the treadmill that we were on previously, people didn't really emotionally feel drawn to taking action and in standing in solidarity with their communities. Standing Rock was a brilliant moment of reunification of indigenous peoples and an invitation to people to come to show up and put their bodies on the line and to build community around something that had a universal impact, and that is really protecting our water and our climate. And it really woke people up to the idea that this is an emotional moment, that it takes everybody involved if we're gonna have any hope for uh, change. And with the intention of de-experting the environmental movement, it's really to invite everyone to join and to participate, to not be hesitant for lack of experience and formal degrees, but to lead with their hearts and to actually step into a moment that they care about from where they are, their local place of care, their community that they are part of, their families that they want to see over the generations, and actually participate in doing the work that we call environmental protection. So for me, this elitist, colonized system of environmental protection isn't creating the change that we need and we simply have run out of time for experts to have the solutions. We need everyone to participate um, if we're going to have some solutions that we now know are, are required. So we, we very consciously invite diverse voices Those that have not been invited to speak, those who may not know they're invited to speak, because the communication and the script that has become such a rhetoric. You know, we have a rhetoric in our environmental protection. It's essentially a scripted rhetoric, and people have gotten very tone deaf because of the static. And when you invite someone who has not spoken, who has a voice, that carries the wisdom of their ancestors, that is like a beacon amidst the static. And people will pause and actually listen because it's fresh, it's honest, and there's no, it's not contrived. It's critical for me to have all voices join because all people are required to participate in this moment.
0: So I feel like oftentimes the word expertise, especially in the environmental movement, as you mentioned, is tied to a degree or having extensive background experience in the field. But would you say that community members and local people who are impacted by these issues in a sense have their own expertise as firsthand witnesses to these
8: issues? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had one of my most treasured teachers was a man named Larry Gibson. And Larry Gibson is someone who lived on Cayford Mountain in Appalachia, who stood in protection of the mountain that he loved. He did not have what was considered a formal expertise. I actually don't know if he had beyond a third grade traditional education but he was the wisest person that I have met. And when someone speaks from a place of integrity and clarity and purpose, that's an expertise that we need now. And anyone who cares about something passionately and understands that we are all related, that we all share an umbilical connection to source, that we all drink water and breathe air, that we all want a thriving planet for our children. Expertise is really, for me, a form of compassion. And it's bravery because it means you'll take a stand. And oftentimes people who are not quote unquote experts will put everything on the line and also cannot be bought. A lot of the times people that are giving testimony or even science in some realms there's been a difficulty in in finding neutral science because some of the systems of support, financial support pollutes the the scientists doing the work. And a lot of it gets very manipulated. And so when you have the need to anchor something to a fact and to actually be able to express a known uh, experiential form of knowledge, those that are truly living and stewarding their land and have great care, have a level of integrity that for me, and, 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 that, and they cannot be bought. That's a form of expertise that we're, we've been lacking in our environmental movement. It was there before, but I think this sense of, I'm not really, I don't really know. I didn't go to school for that. I, I didn't have the training. I don't have that job. Imagine if everybody on the planet understood that they have an expertise just by simply breathing the air and drinking the water, it would be a far more successful movement to protect our Mother Earth if we could step into that invitation.
1: There certainly have been many, you know, many cases where Native Americans have been forced to be the leaders on the fight on various environmental movements because so often it's their land that's being exploited. But uh, certainly, Standing Rocks just seem to be a turning point with this massive mobilization of so many of the American Native American tribes. Uh, that interview of um, Janet McKillivree, who is the founder of Seed and Sovereignty, uh, was by one of our former interns in a camp and was part of her series Indigenous Voices. If you're interested in turning with Hudson Mohawk Magazine or the Sanctuary, visit mediasanctuary.org under the Get Involved tab.
0: And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Cena Bazilahickey.
1: I'm Mark Dunlay. I want to thank Joan Eason for being our engineer, as well as our other volunteers, uh, Anna Stellenkamp and Bria Barthel and myself. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.